We are in the midst of a, uh, of a sermon series going through the Old Testament book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel tells us about a time in Israel's history uh, when they were invaded by Babylon, by Babylon uh, modern-day Iraq, uh, by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he came in, burnt much of the city, uh, tore down the walls. Daniel would have been about 16 years old during this time when this happened, and he, along with some of his buddies, uh, were put into the king's court. Uh, so while the rest of Israel were treated like common slaves, these guys um, were in a place of influence, and they were in a place of honor. Um, Daniel and his friends, um, in the midst of all that, were confronted uh, with a secular society that went uh, just totally against their religion. Uh, and they were trying to stay strong. They were trying to live a godly life in the midst of, of the secular things they face. So what this book teaches us is how we can live a godly life. As culture shifts, as culture becomes more and more ungodly. In week one of this series, we saw um, that culture's greatest goal is to rename you. It, they, tried to rename, they tried to rename Daniel. They tried to rename his friends. And that's the first thing culture will try to do to you. It, it will try to give you a new label. It will try to redefine you. Uh, the second week, the last week, we talked about culture's greatest test. And we looked at those incredible st- historical accounts and discovered that the test is, uh, are you going to worship God or something or someone else that culture presents to you? And I'm convinced that today, tonight, this message impacts every single one of us. If week one was culture's greatest goal and last week was culture's greatest test, this week is culture's greatest sin. And... Uh, this is kind of a heavy message, so I kind of wanted to lighten it up here at the beginning. And uh, I wanted to show you a video. It doesn't really have anything to do with anything, but I hope you appreciate it. Um, this is actually one of my favorite Andy Griffith uh, moments, um, where the pastor brings in a guest preacher. And uh, the guest preacher talks a, preaches a sermon called, What's Your Hurry? And he's telling this little town of Mayberry that, you know, they need to, they're living too fast pace of a life. They need to slow down. Uh, he's from New York. It's, it's very funny. But Barney falls asleep during the, during the message. Uh, so he really has no clue what the pastor's been talking about. Let, let's watch this. Dr. Breen, may I introduce Sheriff Taylor? Dr. Breen. His aunt, Miss B. Ms. Johnson. Uh-huh. And Miss Deputy Fyfe. <laughs> well, a real pleasure. Oh, Dr. Breen, your sermon had such a wonderful lesson for us. Yes, sir. You really hit the nail right on the head there. Yes, sir, that's one subject you just can't talk enough about, sin. <laughs> yes, uh, well, um... Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you. Well, it's good to Bye. Bye. Didn't talk about sin. <laughs> Culture's greatest sin. And, and I'm just going to tell you right up front here what it is. Um, it, it's not falling asleep in church. Um, there's... I'm breaking some communication rules tonight because normally you would want to build some tension. Normally you'd want to have everybody guessing what's culture's greatest sin, but I want to be very clear tonight and uh, I'm just going to tell you right up front, culture's greatest sin is the sin of pride. And I'm not talking about uh, your son just had a big play at the football game and you're proud of him. I'm not talking about your daughter just graduated from college and, and you're proud of her. I'm not talking about you just paid off all your debts and you're, you're satisfied with the effort, you're proud of the effort. Not that kind of pride. 
Our greatest sin is when we say, God, we got this. Uh, We don't need you anymore. We can put you off to the side, calling you when we need you. We'll leave you over here because we don't really need you right now. You define uh, this kind of pride this way, not trusting God. Pride is not trusting God, and, and not trusting God is the greatest of evils. Not trusting God or pride is the root of every other sin. Let me say it this way. Murder's not the greatest sin. Suicide's not the greatest sin. Adultery or any other sexual wrongdoing's not the greatest sin. Whatever you think the greatest sin is, that sin was rooted in pride. The root of that sin was not trusting God. The root of that sin was, God, I don't need you. I can handle this on my own. That's the root of every other sin. And we're going to see an incredible story that took place in King Nebuchadnezzar's life uh, in Daniel 4. We'll jump right in. Verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. Now, he's not talking about prosperity like getting another car, buying a bigger house, building your wealth. He's talking about prosperity of the soul. Uh, Maybe uh, he's saying, may you live in the peace and the contentment that God wanted you to have. Verse 2, I I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders of the most high God has performed for me. Whoa, 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 Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah, that's right. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking. Who would have guessed this? How great are his signs, how powerful his wonders His kingdom will last forever. His rule through all generations. So he's praising God. He is worshiping God. Then declaring that this is not a God or a message that is secluded to a specific generation, but it has application to every generation. Daniel is a prophetic book, meaning that every bit of it is relevant to us. What we'll discover as we look at at this chapter is that Nebuchadnezzar would not bow to God initially. Uh, He was very prideful. And he was warned in a dream that if he didn't turn and worship God, that he would go insane. Insanity. Insanity is when your thinking is deranged and it produces turmoil in your life. It produces chaos in your life or in your soul. And quite frankly, I think we see a lot of insanity today. People living in the chaos that was produced by insanity, produced by pride, produced by not trusting God. Not trusting God will always lead us to chaos. We see it in the chaos of the earth. The earth is groaning. There is madness on the earth. And where does it come from? It comes from not trusting God. It stems from deranged thinking that that is rooted in pride that will always lead to insanity, turmoil in the soul. God desires that you instead prosper greatly, that you would be at peace. He desires a whole community and culture to be at peace. But before peace can be restored, we have to recognize and deal with the insanity. So let's look at Nebuchadnezzar's story, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. And we'll see three prideful things that can lead us to insanity. Three prideful things that lead to insanity. Daniel 4, 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. One of the greatest ironies of the country that we live in is we are incredibly blessed. We live in the greatest country on earth. God has blessed America so that it can be a blessing to the rest of the world. But in every generation, as far back as they can go back and study, any generation that has experienced any level of prosperity and wealth had no idea how to handle the prosperity and wealth. 
In every case, the prosperity led to pride. We got this, God. We'll call you later. We're okay. And we retreat into a a fire alarm relationship with God where we don't want anything to do with God. And then when the house is burning down, we say, God, where were you? So here's the question. Can we stay prosperous and, and, and still very close to God? If we don't, the same thing that happened to Nebuchadnezzar will happen to us. We'll sit at home, we'll look at our stuff, we'll look out the window, and we'll say, man, we got this. If we do that and leave God out of our lives, we'll find ourselves in complete insanity. Because insanity happens, number one, when we're self-sufficient instead of God-dependent. And many of us will say, that's not me, I love God, look at me, I'm at church. Well, I'll be the first to confess in here today, I'm not always God-dependent. And you know where it shows up the most? It shows up in my prayerlessness. Isn't it interesting that we pray a lot more when trouble happens and when things are going wrong and a whole lot less when everything's going great? Isn't it interesting that when chaos is going on, churches are packed. Then when everything is going great, the economy is booming, uh, church attendance declines. How do we stay God-dependent when everything is okay? We pray. Prayer is not a fire alarm. It's not a 911 call prayer. Prayer is also when everything is still going great. God, I still need you. Give me today my daily bread. God, without you, I am nothing. I declare my dependence on God every day. Think about about it this way. Think about the the atheism that is prayerlessness. And we get to a place where we say, you know what, God, I think I got this. I'll, I'll let you know when I need you. I'll tell you right now, I know who I am and I know who I am not and I am dependent on God's power to live. What's the secret? The way you communicate that to God daily in prayer, daily on your knees. Turn back to God dependency instead of self-sufficiency. Now we'll continue with Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. I'm skipping some verses here, uh, but Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and in this dream he sees a giant tree over this whole country And it had huge limbs and it had wildlife living in it and fruit was hanging from it. It was bringing a blessing to his country. And all of a sudden, the tree was cut down with the stump remaining. And he was hoping that that was a picture of what would happen to his enemies. Uh, So he asked his magicians to interpret the dream. None of them could. And so he goes to Daniel yet again and asks him. And of course, Daniel could interpret it. And he said, verse 22, that tree, your majesty, is you. Now, this could have gotten Daniel's head cut off. Nebuchadnezzar hadn't been converted yet, and he was a really bad guy. But Daniel, like every godly man should, stood up to his his generation and said it like it is. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth. Then you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground. God always leaves the ability for you to find a way back to him, to turn back to him. There's always a retribution for what we do, and some say that that's God's judging. I hear people say all the time, God's judging America. I'm not sure that God is judging America as much as we've just stepped out from his protection and guidance. And and we've brought it on ourselves. I mean, that's what happens. But God leaves enough for us to come back to him. 
Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. That's insanity. This is what the dream means. Your majesty and what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord the King. You will be driven from human society and you will live in the fields with wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow and you will live drenched with the dew of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar literally went insane. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. Nebuchadnezzar kept taking credit for the things that he he didn't do. And he would admire his own work, and we do that in some way. Look at the house I live in. Look at my cars. Look at the success of my business. And God says, I want you to be successful, but you can't declare that it came from you. That's culture's greatest sin. That's end times insanity, and there's a prophetic warning for us. Number two, when we give ourselves the credit instead of thanking God. Literally, the right way for you and me to live, if we were going to avoid the turmoil in our soul, is to thank God for everything. In everything, give thanks because this is God's will concerning you. When things are going great, God, it's great because of you. When things are going bad, God, I don't know how I would make it through this without you. You give and take away. Blessed be your name. Consider it pure joy. People will think you're crazy, but no, culture is crazy. It's insane to think, look what I built. Well, where did you get the resources to build that? Where did you get the metal or the materials to craft that thing? Ryland, you don't understand. I went to school. I worked hard. I mean, I've worked, I do more than most people do. I put in a lot of hours. Well, you wouldn't have been able to do that if God didn't give you the brain and the breath and the life to make that happen. If you want to avoid a Nebuchadnezzar-like insanity, you've got to have an attitude of gratitude. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? I think it's important even when we give, even when we're being generous, that we don't get the idea that we are giving. God, it's yours. Everything is yours. I'm just going to return it back to you. That kind of attitude gives you prosperity of the soul that the world cannot give you. Here's the third mark of end times insanity. Daniel 4, 26. But the stump and the roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that. Read these last two words out loud. Heaven rules. Say it again. Heaven rules. Insanity happens, number one, when we're self-sufficient instead of God-dependent. Number two, when we give ourselves the credit instead of thanking God. And don't write anything in yet, but number three is when we think we rule. It's arrogant to think that we know more than God. We're going to end up like a stump if we think we know better than God. And further, the further we get apart from God's word, the more insanity we'll see. Every time we reject God's word, there's more chaos. But God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. One definition of sin is doing it my way despite what God says. 
We've got to accept the authority of God's word. So number three is when we think we know best, instead of acknowledging that heaven rules. When we think we know best, instead of acknowledging that heaven rules, Isaiah 66, 2, I will bless those. How many of you would like to be blessed by God? Yes, I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at my word. It's the one who says, I don't know best. God, you do. You know best. And I don't understand this, but I'm going to obey it. God doesn't really ask us to understand his will or even to understand him. He calls you to realize that his ways are indeed higher. That his thoughts are not our thoughts. I'm going to follow God because he knows best. The next few verses aren't in your notes. Daniel 4.27, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. Perhaps then you will continue to have peace. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. The, the hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the ancient wonders of the world. As he looked out across the city, he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with wild animals and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdom of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow and he was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. He literally went insane. But now we see sanity being restored. Verse 34, After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned. God is always in a moment willing to forgive you and restore you. He's always willing uh, to restore you and forgive you. Psalm 51 tells us that a broken and contrite spirit, God will never despise. You can mess up, you can mess up, you can mess up, you can run and run and run and run and run, and it's just one step back to God. I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. It's always God's desire to bless you. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. I want to show you the three things. I want to break this down, show you the three things Nebuchadnezzar did to restore sanity and allow God to bless him. Uh, there are the three things that you will need to do uh, if, if you want to restore sanity in your life. It'll be the three things we all need to do to restore sanity in our lives. 
You might say, I'm not insane. No eagle's feathers or talons here. I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> if you want to see the sanity in your relationships restored, you're going to have to do these three things. If you want to see sanity restored in your marriage, things aren't what they used to be, you got to do these three things. If you want to see re- sanity restored in, in your finances, maybe you keep playing with debt, you get some traction, then, then you convince yourself that certain things are okay. If you want to see sanity restored in your family, Maybe you haven't gotten along with your parents or your kids or, or someone in your family for years. If you want to see sanity restored in, in your work life or in your friendships or in your schooling or in your ministry, write these three things down. I want you to see these three things and live by them. You can have sanity restored when you decide to, number one, exalt the king of heaven. I know when I get up here, uh, sometimes I'm a little bit hyper and people said that with the music, uh, maybe I just stir up emotions and whatever. But do you know why I give it all in worship? Because it's genuinely what God deserves. I know for some of us that this service is, is a huge leap maybe from where you came from and we're, you're, we're patient, you have time. But there is an arrogance associated with us saying, well, that's not my style. When God's word says, lift your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord, if he would have said, touch your nose, lift one leg, do the little teapot short and stout, we should do it. I mean, why? Because he's God. It's not a matter of what I feel or or, or what I like or what my style is. Clap your hands, all ye people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. When you begin to exalt God, your sanity will begin to be restored. Your life will be abundant. That's why we praise God, because he is worthy of our praise, and we need to exalt him. Second thing to restore sanity. Number two, acknowledge that God does everything right, and his ways are always just. Stop trying to figure out God. Stop trying to adapt God to culture. Stop trying to modify God and modify the Bible. When we come to the place where we accept that God has the final word, the final authority, sanity and blessing will return to our lives. Because God's ways work. They are ten times better than anything else. And the last word, this one is very simple, yet very profound. Number three, walk in humility. What's humility? Uh, Is it putting yourself down? No. No. Humility is not thinking you are less. It is never forgetting that it's Jesus who made you more. It's not about me. It's walking in courage and conviction, but without arrogance. And when that happens, you're going to be blessed. One last, one last thought. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord. You're, you're going to get humbled either way. It's always easy to hum, easier to humble yourself than to be humbled. If pride is playing a large role in your life, and I'll tell you, this message is convicting me too. The more we humble ourselves, the more God will lift us up. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is today's message in one sentence, in one verse. I want you to walk away with it memorized. Take this with you today. Say it with me. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Again, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. One more time, everyone. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's watch this video. 
Hello, my name is Jared Tebow. I grew up in a racing family in the high desert of Southern California. My dad raced street bikes when I was very young, and I started racing dirt bikes when I was six. In second grade, my parents decided to get a divorce. In our family, there wasn't much talk about God or Jesus. I think my mom went to church a little, but I can't remember attending with her. When I was in fifth grade, I decided I was tired of having casts and monthly hospital visits from racing dirt bikes, and the following year, I found something that would forever change my life. At the time, I was living with my mom in Bakersfield, California, which was about one hour away from where I grew up and where my dad was still living. My dad would come visit me, and one day we decided to check out a hobby store near my mom's house. I never really had RC cars before, and I didn't realize they had tracks to race on. As soon as I heard the nitro-powered engines and saw the trucks and buggies clearing the jumps around the track, I was hooked. I had just turned 12, and even though the workers at the shop said I was too young, my dad bought me a used gas truck. For me, RC was motocross without the hospital, and I loved it. My dad was my mechanic, and all I had to do was just focus on learning how to drive better. I started racing the weekly club races and practiced every chance I had. One year later, I had gone through the ranks faster than anyone in the history of RC. I was a professional driver at the age of 13, and my dad and I were traveling the world racing. In 2003, I was attending a race in Pleasant Hill, Missouri. It was a track that I had been to before, and it was owned by one of my teammates. This trip was different than the years previous because I met the track owner's beautiful daughter, Megan. She had a tent set up and was selling drinks. My team manager introduced us, mainly because we had our team drinks under her tent. Let's just say I was extra thirsty that weekend. We managed to exchange phone numbers and emails to keep in touch. That Thanksgiving, I flew up to Kansas City and Megan and her family picked me up at the airport. I was nervous. I knew her dad, but I knew him as Hillbilly the RC racer, not as Steve, Megan's dad. I also knew that they were Christians and believed in God and attended church. That meant I would have to attend church. I had never been to a church before. I had my own views on Christians. My views were that Christians were the kids at my school that talked about youth group, but then had parties, got drunk, and smoked. I thought they were all hypocrites while they used church to pretend that they were good people. I went to Megan's church with them, and it wasn't too bad. I lived through my first church service. I grew up as a good kid. I didn't drink, never tried smoking, and even wanted to wait to have sex. Other than Megan, I didn't know many others with those same views. She had very similar thoughts as I did. Our time dating long distance was amazing, but our dream was to be able to see each other on a daily basis. In 2005, I was a senior in high school. My racing career was really starting to take form, and I was now a three-time U.S. national champion, though my world had just been seriously rocked. My mom was going through tough times that I was not aware of, and she tried to take her own life. It was a major shock, and I just couldn't figure out why she wanted to leave me. It was very tough on our relationship, to say the least. A short time after that, while I was living with my dad, he told me he had to work late, which he told me many times in the past, and that I would see him in the morning. 
That night, I was interrupted while watching TV by police officers charging into the house and telling me I needed to not touch anything and leave the house. The next day, I was informed that my dad had been arrested and wasn't going to be coming home. Here I was in total shock again. Neither of my parents were there for me, and I was on my own. A couple weeks later, on the day of my high school graduation, my dad was released on bail, and he was able to get there in time to see me graduate. After that, it was back to business. My racing career was in full swing, and we pretended that nothing ever happened. I finished out 2005 with a great racing year and one of the most dominating years in RC history. I was ranked the best driver in the world. In April of 2006, my dad's trial ended and he was sentenced to nine months in prison. My life would look much different when he returned. Here I was, an 18-year-old kid, a professional racer, living on my own and having to support myself financially. I was just ranked the best RC driver in the world and now I've lost my mechanic and partner. I didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't build my cars. I couldn't maintain my cars. I couldn't even get them set up for all the different tracks I raced. On top of all that stress, I was still very hurt that my mom had made a decision to try to leave Earth and not see me anymore. 2006 was a very tough year, but I did have one thing going for me, and that was Megan. We had been dating for three years, and we were now engaged to be married. I would still go out to Missouri and visit her every chance I had. While out there, we would go to their church, but I still wasn't that into it. She would talk to me about Jesus Christ and God, but she knew not to push too hard. In summer of 2006, my racing career was struggling, and the RC community had almost turned against me. People were mad at me for what my dad did, but I didn't do anything wrong. I was ready for my life to be over. Megan kept telling me to try to talk to God, that he could help me. I thought, how would talking to the air help me? One night, I got off the phone with Megan, and I was just done with life. I had nothing else left. I tried dealing with my problems myself, but it wasn't working. I got off my bed, went to the floor, and got onto my knees. There, I broke down and gave it all to God and talked to him for the very first time. I didn't know how this was supposed to work or how I needed to talk to him. It didn't matter though, he was there that night when I needed him. It was an amazing moment in my life and I actually felt better. I had some assurance that my life was going to be okay. Later on, I learned about Jesus and how he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave. That if you believe in Jesus, you can have eternal life. Megan had just graduated from high school, and the plan was for her to move to California and go to school out there. When I really started my relationship with Jesus Christ, moving Megan out to California didn't seem like the best option anymore. California was filled with bad memories in the past. I wanted a fresh start, so in November I bought a house in Raymore, Missouri. My mom also decided to leave California, and she moved to Clinton, Missouri. Shortly after Christmas of 2006, my dad was released from prison. Megan and I got married January 5th, 2007, but my dad was in, unable to attend our wedding. Our dream was finally coming true. Megan and I got to see each other every day, and it was all we had dreamed it to be. One of our major commitments after we got married was to tithe. By now, we were attending church on a regular basis, 
but I was still very new to all this. Giving 10% of my income was a huge commitment for me, but one I am very thankful we made. In the beginning, tithing was like paying tuition for school. They say people that pay for their school take school much more serious than if you get it for free. I figured if I'm paying the money, I might as well get all that I can from it. Later on, I learned that tithing was much more than paying tuition. It was showing God that I'm thankful for all the things that he gives me. I give him my first 10% and I trust that he will provide for me and my family. It is breaking down the materialistic mindset that the world wants us to have as a reminder that all things are God's. 2007 was a great year. I had a great wife. I was learning about Jesus Christ and God and my racing career was back on track. I even won my first world championship in Japan that year. We bounced around from church to church for a couple years, trying to find a place that felt like home. We heard about Rockbrook and attended there for the first time in May of 2009. Everyone was very warm and welcoming. It just had the vibe we've been looking for. After that first Sunday service, Megan and I even saw Ryland and Lauren at the plaza taking pictures. I thought, wow, even those church people go out into the real world. We started attending regularly, and we even became good friends with Ryland and Lauren. We finally felt at home, and that led to me taking the next big step in my journey. That next step was joining a small group. We were part of a new small group for young married couples that started in August of 2009, and we still meet with that small group today. Joining that small group was an important tool to getting us more plugged into church and my relationship with Jesus Christ. Life seemed to be going pretty good. My relationships with both my parents were even getting better. And on November 18th, 2010, God would give us the amazing gift of a healthy little girl that we named Rosalind. She was so beautiful and healthy, life seemed great. In 2011, it seemed like life took two steps forward and then one big step backwards. I had brought in a very dark secret into our marriage. God opened my eyes to see that I needed help. I had an addiction to internet pornography. It was very tough in our marriage and both of us as individuals. God had this plan though. That's why he had put us in a small group. I could talk with the guys and they really helped me fight my addiction. Addiction is a wild tool that the devil uses to destroy you. It is almost like a mind control that the devil has over you and he wants you to think that you can't overcome it. Slowly, our marriage was coming back together, and my faith was growing. We wanted another child and got pregnant in July of 2012. We were very excited, but during our 18-week ultrasound, we got rocked by life harder than I could ever imagine. Our new baby was not in good health and not developing properly. The doctor said the baby had no brain, no face, no skull, its organs were not inside the body, it was missing a wrist and some fingers, and it had club feet. We had all the shock we could handle, and then some. The doctor gave us two options. We could abort the baby and kill it, or we could carry it and wait for it to die. By this time, Megan was just starting to show some of her pregnant belly, and it was going to be very tough to answer people when they had comments about us being pregnant. We prayed about it and decided that we could not decide if our child shall live or die. Only God should have that power. That would later turn into one of the greatest decisions of our lives. 
Soon after we found out that the baby was a girl, we named her Isabella Ann Tebow, and we were just going to enjoy all the time we had with her. I was still freaking out inside and wanted to call my dad to tell him about everything and get some support. Support was not what he had for me, though. He only had an opinion for me, and it was not the same as I had. On top of trying to handle all of this, I still had my racing career. Just a month later, I was on a plane to Argentina to compete in the world championships, while my wife was at home pregnant with a sick baby. The race went terrible. I was one of the favorites to win the title, but I had mechanical issues that took my chance away. My life was flipped again, and I was in a major battle with God as to why. Shortly after I returned, Megan and I went to downtown Kansas City to take pictures of her and Isabella. While we were taking pictures, Megan's water broke, and we were off to the hospital. Megan was only 24 weeks pregnant, and our time with Isabella was almost over. On December 16, 2012, Isabella Ann Tebow was stillborn. I was terrified to see her, as we didn't know what to expect. I cut her umbilical cord, and we saw her for the first time. To us, she looked beautiful. It didn't even matter that she was not developed. She was our daughter. We really enjoyed the time we had with her. We held her, we sang to her, read to her, and we stayed the night with her in the hospital. Leaving the hospital was a very tough and weird time for us. I just couldn't believe that this was really happening and our time with her was finished. Saying that I was mad at God doesn't come close to describing my feelings towards him. I was trying to do everything right in life, but I was almost done with being a Christian altogether. Then I realized that God has been transforming me this entire time. From first talking to God in my bedroom in 2006 to December 2012, I did good things. I was a good person. I had a good marriage. I was a good dad. But it wasn't good enough. That wasn't what God wanted for me. God wanted greater things for me. Now I have realized why God gave me Isabella. My question to him was always, why would you not let her live here on earth with me? Isabella was not made for this earth. God used Isabella to wake us up, to open our blinded eyes. I was living a worldly life with just a little snack of God on Sundays and Mondays. After Isabella, my wife started blogging about our story and Isabella is reaching out to people all over the world. It has even opened up my eyes to blog about my life to all my racing fans. I have an opportunity to share the good news to thousands of people all around the world. Let me tell you something. You can question God all you want, but God works in ways that we will never understand. If we understood everything in life, we wouldn't need God, we wouldn't need to have faith, and we wouldn't have to know Jesus Christ. God has turned all the terrible things that have happened in my life into the greatest blessings. It took my mom trying to take her own life and my dad going to prison for me to come to Christ and get saved. It took losing a child to open my eyes and see that I thought I was doing everything right, but I was stagnant. God wants to do great things in our lives. Today I can say that I am for the first time feeling true happiness. I am feeling peace that I never thought that I could feel. Life is short here on earth. We need to live our lives for Christ, and then we can see this earth for what God created it for.
that's what God does. He steps in. When we humble ourselves before him, he restores. He is ready. He is willing. He wants to restore any area of your life. It's what he does. It's who he is. He's ready to do it in your life. I invite you to allow him to do that tonight. Let's pray together. I wonder if there's anybody here today that will recognize that they've gotten out of God's protection, out of God's ways. Anyone that will say, uh, in my arrogance, either knowing or unknowing, I've removed myself from God's authority. And, and I've got insanity going on in my life, and I need my peace restored. The world's ways will never work. There's nothing in culture that works. It, it will always produce insanity. If you will admit that today that you've gotten out of God's ways, maybe he's a part of your life but not the king of your life, and there's chaos going in your life, God wants to restore you. He's left some roots there, and he wants to restore you and give you prosperity of the soul, true peace. How do you do that? You do what Nebuchadnezzar did. You renounce your sins. You ask for forgiveness. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a second, without question, the Lord will forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If that's you today, I want to pray for you. You won't have to stand up. You won't have to come down to the front. I just want to pray for those that say, I need to make that decision. For some of you, it's, it's going to be the first time. Others of you have walked, walked out from God's protection. And the Spirit is drawing you back in. I believe you're one heartfelt confession away from God changing your life. Make that decision right now. Pray in your own heart and mind with me. God, I acknowledge that you rule, and today I willingly place my life under you. All your ways are just. All your ways are right. Thank you for sending Jesus to pay for my pride. Today I renounce my sin. I ask you to forgive me. Raise me to life. Thank you for new life. In your name I pray. And everybody in this church says amen. amen. Would you all please stand? This is a new song, but...